Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. You're listening to The Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting with a heavy heart this morning after the result of the weekend's referendum. But we also know that it's going to be more and more important that non-Indigenous people stand up beside First Nations Australians to demand the climate justice that they weren't given on the weekend. They have a wealth of ancient wisdom that will help us navigate the climate crisis that we're facing. If you don't know, say no. I actually know quite a few people who who say, well, this is very confusing, so what do I know? So I'll say no. The no was a no to change. What I'm thinking is, with the climate, it's the same story. You can see why politicians are being careful, not moving too fast with stepping in, putting you know, taxes on our petrol, or doing something that disturbs everyday life, because it's very easy to create this story of, if you don't know, say no. And suddenly, in an election time, things change back to business as usual once again. The no was a no to change. And in the meanwhile, record heat waves, record fires, floods, it's all happening. And this is happening within that so-called safe one degree of warming that the scientists are talking about, we're experiencing now. That's within the safe area. And we're on track to double that, you know, within the, just a decade or two, we're, we're doubling that to up to two degrees. I think the climate movement needs to reflect on what happened in this referendum in the weekend, because what it certainly showed is that even though every single climate organization out there was in favor of a yes that was not powerful enough to change the result in other words the climate movement even when it works hard makes a million phone calls is out in the streets it's not enough to change a no to a yes we need to think about how we can do that because if we don't if we don't come together on this one putting a full stop on emissions. There'll just be more fires, more floods, and more havoc. Over to you, Colin Market, OAM. Let's hear what you have for us today. Yes, well, I'm trying to strike a positive note, but I think you're right. I think we can learn an awful lot, Mick, from the way that the No, the no campaign rested what should have been a very positive move for Australia uh, by not just muddying the waters, but putting a bloody bar mix in. Uh, But my roundup for the week begins in the Antarctic, where two new reports last week have shown the effects 
of more than 40% of Antarctica's ice shelves shrinking over the past 25 years. The Getz ice shelf in West Antarctica has some of the largest ice losses. Only 5% of the ice loss that they've experienced was due to carving, and that's when chunks of ice break off. The rest was due to melting at the base of the ice shelf. If the ice shelves diminish or disappear, this affects global ocean circulations, the report says. In the Southern Ocean, salty, dense water sinks to the bottom of the ocean. It's one of the drivers of a conveyor belt effect. But fresh water released from melting ice dilutes this salty water. It makes it, takes it longer to sink. And that slows down the ocean circulation system. 70 of the 160 ice shelves that surround Antarctica reduced in volume between 1997 and 2021 with the net release of 7.5 trillion tonnes of meltwater into the ocean. This is from scientists from the University of Leeds, and they released a paper last week in the Scientific Advances Journal. These are ice shelves act as plugs at the end of glaciers. They slow down the flow of ice, but when they become thin or they shrink, the rate of ice loss to the ocean increases. And Dr. Ben Davidson from the University of Leeds says, we expect most ice shelves to go through cycles of rapid but short-lived shrinking, and then they regrow slowly. Instead, we see that almost half of them are shrinking and with no sign of recovery. And then came a second report that said last month, penguin populations in the Antarctic had suffered catastrophic losses. It showed no chicks had survived through spring in four of the five colonies it was studying. The loss of the chicks coincides with record low sea ice coverage. Human-induced global warming was likely to be a key factor in the loss of this ice, the study found. If it had been due to natural variations in climate patterns, there would have been some signs of ice regrowth in the western ice shelves, and there was none. The fresh water that's put into the seawater is causing problems that we weren't thinking about. We know that we're losing ice which reflects sunlight because it's white. Uh, we know that we were losing that, but nobody had foreseen what the pouring of fresh water in amongst the seawater causes difficulties yet to be experienced. To California, where the renowned climate group Berkeley Earth announced last week that global mean temperatures in September 2023 set new records for global warming. This also previously occurred in March, July and August of 2023 this year. The report predicts that if the trend continues, it's likely that global warming will cause the long-term average to exceed 1.5 degrees during the 2030s, unless significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions are achieved soon. The last four months have been extraordinary in terms of global average temperatures, with new monthly records being set in every month, and not just by small margins, but by large margins. So, on a week of mostly negative news, I've put together four positive pieces. 
starting in Sweden, where it was announced that petrol and diesel-powered cars will be banned from the nation's capital, Stockholm, from 2025. The ban will cover 20 mid-city blocks. Announcing the plan, Lars Strongsjön, the city's vice mayor for transport, says nowadays the air in Stockholm caused babies to have lung conditions and the elderly to die prematurely. We need to eliminate the harmful exhaust gases from petrol and diesel cars. That's why we are introducing the most ambitious low emission zones to date. A number of cities have already introduced or are introducing schemes to try to tackle air pollution, but Stockholm's goes much farther than most. Paris, Athens and Madrid have only banned diesel cars, and London has a charging scheme that covers most vehicle emissions. But Vice Mayor Strongen said that many cities have implanted low emission zones where high emission cars are allowed to drive if they pay a charge. But Stockholm's model is more far-reaching. Petrol and diesel cars are prohibited, period. We have chosen an area where the large numbers of cyclists and pedestrians are exposed to unhealthy air on a daily basis. It is also a part of the city that is home to forward-thinking companies that are keen to lead the transition to a more sustainable future. And now to Norway next door, uh, where EVs recorded a 93% share of the country's auto market in September. That's up from 89% on the year. And then to Sydney, where the Dramana drive-ins claimed a world first. You can drive in, get a meal, watch a film, and while you're watching it, you plug in your EV and it's charged free of charge. And that's, believe it or not, it's a world first. I would have thought that they'd have been doing that in America for decades. But um, no, it's a first for Australia. And it's really unusual for us to come up top on something which is climate related. And I'd like to finish, if I can, with a name that uh, we haven't heard for a little while. Forest Green Rovers, the world's greenest, most sustainable sports team. Um, they've been on a losing streak that goes back to last year. Uh, last year, they were uh, relegated from the English League Division One. They're a soccer club. Uh, they were bottom of uh, the league. And instead of coming back into the new uh, league as a returning um, higher quality team, they lost most of their first matches. And they were sitting on the bottom of the English Division Two having lost or drawn all of their matches. But then at the weekend, they were playing Colchester and they won 5-0. So we're hoping that they've turned the corner and I can give you good news about the world's greenest football team each week from here on inwards, because that ends my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Over the years, we've had many people on talking about the benefits of mindfulness. Today, we've got Susie Brown, who's uh, Insight Meditation and Mindfulness Teacher. Susie also, though, has been 
uh, a long-time climate activist, and she was one of the founders of Australian Parents for Climate Action. Welcome, Susie. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tony and Mick. It's really great to be here with you. Now, you you uh, were a local for, for us for a while in Ocean Grove, and now you're, you're up in uh, the Central Coast near Gosford. How's that all going for you? Yeah, it's beautiful up here. Yeah, we moved. I was down in Ocean Grove and decided to head north to the warmer weather of the Central Coast because there's an eco-village here called Narara Eco-Village. And we live in this village with about 100 other people uh, and it's a wonderful place to raise a child and it's also surrounded by rainforest and it's a beautiful spot. So we're really loving it. Terrific. Now, the mindfulness training that you've got coming up, tell our listeners about that, what it involves and if, if they're interested, how they can become involved in it. Yeah, thanks. So um, as a long-term activist myself in environmental action and climate action, I have struggled over 20 years with the emotional toll of it and I know many other people have too whether you're really um, heavily involved or not, it's really upsetting to hear about what's happening to the planet, you know, the destruction of the natural world, but also, you know, humans across the world dying from the effects of climate change. Um, climate crisis um, is accelerating. Natural disasters are more and more frequent. So this is really full on for all of us to deal with. And so Whilst I've been working in the climate action space or for all those years, I was also looking for ways to help myself cope with the, the grief of it all and the, and the fear and, you know, the anger. Um, and for me, I uh, found mindfulness meditation uh, really helped me. Um, so about 15 years ago, I started meditating and going on retreats and really understanding how I could be with these really painful emotions that come up when you see bushfires wiping out a huge chunk of Australia and, and millions of animals dying, people losing their homes and so on. It's really upsetting. Um, and then if you're someone who is involved in climate action and trying to make change, it's so draining because you're pushing and pushing, trying to get things um, to change against big forces like fossil fuel corporations and governments that are slow to act. And again, that's it's demoralising. Um, it's hard to see progress. You, many of us get burnt out. I had um, major um, burnout early on in my career in the environmental field. Because it's it's really hard. There's no doubt it's it's difficult. And so um, what I'm doing now is trying to resource people and help people to cope with the emotional toll of all this, you know, the eco-anxiety, the, the climate grief. Um, and that's people either who you work in the field or, or just anybody who's aware of what's going on. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a course coming up that any, it's online so anyone can join um, from the 25th of October called Developing Emotional Resilience in Facing the Climate Crisis. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I want to put out to your listeners. You're all very welcome to sign up. If you're hearing this before the 25th of October, I'd love to have you there. How long does it go for? Yeah, it, it's a six-session course. Uh, goes once a week um, with a, a break in the middle. 
So from 25th of October to the 6th of December, 7.30 in the evening for the Australian East Coast, daylight savings time. Yeah, so it's on Zoom, so anybody's welcome to join. And, yeah, I'm teaching it with another mindfulness teacher and also climate activist called Ingrid Jolly, who's based in Melbourne. Um, And both of us are trained as mindfulness-based stress reduction teachers. That's our background. Um, And so for many years, both of us have worked with hundreds of people to help deal with stress. However it arises in your life, mindfulness generally really helps to to reduce stress, you know, calm the nervous system to cope better with the stress of life Um, and, of course, the stress of the climate crisis. So, Susie, does that mean that you have changed from being a climate activist to being someone who is more dealing with how do we cope with it? Uh, personally, I'm still doing both. You know, I um, you can't take the climate activist out of me. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I used to be full time employed. I was the yeah the, one of the founders of, of Parents for Climate, um, Australian Parents for Climate Action was our old name, um, and. I was the CEO and, you know, that kind of work is very full on and draining. I've got a young child. Um, It was really hard, I have to say. Um, And so I moved out of that role into um, I'm now on the board of that organisation. And, yeah, my full-time job, well, part-time job, I have to say, is teaching mindfulness and um, Buddhist insight meditation to help people, yeah, with the, the toll of what's going on in the world. But meanwhile, I'm doing community climate action, uh, you know, unpaid activism on the, um, in the evening. Yeah, because there's just so much going on. Uh, you can't look away. I can't look away. Um, so just where I live is the central coast of New South Wales. There are two coal power stations here and one closed uh, old power station and huge coal ash dams just leaching toxic toxins into the water and the air pollution across the central coast. There's a huge um, lot of cancer and asthma and chronic illness in the region as a result. So I'm involved with a campaign to try and get them closed down and get the coal ash remediated. So, yeah, that's um, one of the things I'm doing. Um, But in, in order to do that kind of work, I need to meditate, I need to go in nature, walk in the forest, uh, be present with the beauty that's around us um, and that enables me to cope with, you know, the the stress and the, the grief of all of these the big issues in the world. So you're saying to be a, a qualified, uh, powerful climate activist, you need to have those moments where, you, where you're not an activist, where you're just enjoying being on the planet. Exactly. Appre- that's, appreciating yeah. the beauty of, of nature. That's right. Um, that's well said. Yeah, so many of um, environmental campaigners actually forget to go and enjoy what they are trying to save, which is the forests and the beaches and the beautiful places. And not only you know does it just re-inspire us, but it actually is good for us to. It calms the nervous system to walk in nature, to sit on the beach, to go to the park just breathe in the fresh air like it really is important for our health our mental and physical health so yeah that's a huge part of what i offer um, in mindfulness is being present notice the tree out the window the bird singing out there you know 
it's the nature we are nature let's not forget yeah and and being someone who has experienced uh burnout yourself and then found the benefits so that makes you is going to make you a much better teacher of it for others who, who that you know that lived experience that you've got yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, in my early years um, working in the environmental field, I worked for the Australian Conservation Foundation and had a really big job and I just threw myself into it and my whole life was this job and I was going to save the planet single-handedly, you know. And uh, needless to say, I got burnt out after about five years of that um, because not only was I just working all the time and not looking after myself, you know, I wasn't going out into nature and re-energizing myself and taking time out, but also the thoughts and the worries about um, the future and what was going to happen with climate, with um, all the, you know, the other issues and, you know, the, the anger about these awful companies who are causing all the damage or politicians all of that was like my everyday, all-day experience. I was just absorbed by this fear and, ang and anger uh, and, yeah, not feeling connected to this moment, to the earth, to nature around me. And that took its toll. That's why I burnt out. Mm. And so then for me I, I started meditating and going on retreats and I realised that I could still do the work of trying to save the planet um, maybe not single-handedly, but I could do it with others um, and I could be present in this moment, enjoy this moment um, and not let the worries and the fears and the emotion of anger and grief overwhelm me um, because my nervous system can't do that day after day. You know, I need to calm my nervous system and, and the best way to do it is this mindfulness, which is being present and being aware of these thoughts and emotions that are going on and choosing to let them go when we need to and just be here in this moment. Is it a, a similar process each week during your course? So in the course, we're going to cover a number of themes. Um, so basic mindfulness meditation, of course, like how do we be present? How do we become aware of the, all the worries and thoughts and the emotions and, and work with them so they're not overwhelming. And we'll also look at what helps you to feel more resilient. Like what are the things you can do, like going walking in nature or cuddling your dog or, or playing with your child or cooking or whatever, what makes you feel more resilient? So we're going to look at what nourishes you and what depletes you, you know, is spending hours on Facebook or on the news um, and reading all the bad news, is that actually nourishing you? Possibly not. So, you know, finding, it, it's all about finding balance, you know, like balance between taking the action we need to take but also looking after ourselves. It really changes the perspective you have on the world, on the way you live your life. Susie, I think you're right about that. Anger is something that really, you know, tears you down in the long run. And there's a lot to be angry about because all the destruction we're seeing, all the people being killed, all the houses being burned, all the animals drowning and flooding and so on, is a consequence of people who've been sitting and still are sitting in boardrooms making decisions to open up 
new coal mines or uh, as we've seen on the documentary by the ABC recently, you know, drilling for more gas out in the ocean and so on. And they are deliberately taking the decision, this is how we make our money and we will continue doing that and we will even do more of it. So understandably, there is a lot of anger. And it reminds me of, you know, this old Chinese, I think he was a, like a philosopher, Confucius, who said, when you hate someone, they have defeated you. There's something there to reflect on. This is 2,500 years ago he said that, but there's a wisdom there that we have to maybe, you know, get out of that anger and out of that hatred and find a new place, a more mindful place, as what you're talking about. Absolutely. And yeah, the Buddha taught that also, um, that, yeah, hatred does not cease by hatred, but by love alone. So the only way to fix this problem, which is caused by greed, selfish greed by a small number, yeah, is not by hating them and, and anger, like you said, it is um, by loving ourselves and loving each other and spreading that um, and acting, doing the, what we need to do, tying out, chaining ourselves to a bulldozer or going and meeting with a politician or all the many things we need to do, but doing it out of love for the planet and love for each other rather than out of anger and hatred. Yeah, there's a real condition to nature deprivation disorder and I think that runs rampant in fossil fuel boardrooms. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and just the, the disconnection. So the, those people allow selfish greed to just take over everything else and they've just forgotten actually what would make them happy is to feel love for others and, you know, connection with others. Yeah. And it's sad. And it's really sad for them. Yeah, and just walk the country that they're thinking about destroying, like just be there think, well, maybe this isn't such a good thing to do. You know, there are people yeah. connected to this country and have been for millennia and we're just going to despoil it. But they, they very rarely go on site. It's just they make the decision from their air-conditioned boardrooms. Yeah, That's right, or their helicopters in the sky. Yeah. Susie, if people want to uh, link up with your course, which begins here 25th of October, how do they find you? Yeah, I have a website which has um, the online course, which anyone can join from anywhere if the time zone suits you. On my website, it's avistamindfulness.com.au. I also have another course um, at the same time on the following evenings, which is just for the Central Coast. So uh, you can find both of them on my website. Yeah, and I'd love to welcome anyone who feels like this would be beneficial to them. And we'll put the link in the show notes, as we call it, the podcast notes on climatesafety.info, as usual, as we do every week. Thank okay. you so much, Susie, and good luck. Uh, we hope a lot of people will uh, show up and, and be part of it. It sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk about these important things. I saw on the news today a hundred homes were washed away Stormy waters pouring from the skies 
But the seas as they began to rise Elsewhere of water there's no trouble This man's crown was lost due to the change of climate A forest growing up in fire Ice cream smelling seas going high Well you wanna know how can this be Will we to be touched by tragedy Their food on wood and kept warm as best they could. And then some wonderful black rocks called coal won the homes and made the railroads roll. And when all came gushing, that we could go far in our car without thinking about a change in climate. Oil and coal and natural gas were created eons past. Carbon luck within them will go free when we burn them for electricity. A carbon joins with air to make up something new. CO2, too much of it will change our climate. Factories will once pull out stuff And no one tells them that's enough Bringing all that stuff from here to there Planes and trucks have to pollute our air And make us sick and spout the carbon to the sky Way up high Where it's going to change Famine stalks the budget land Verdant pastures in the sand And glaciers shrink and mountain streams run dry Lightning flashes from a heated sky And who will help those people when they flee? Refugee Victims of the change Fix the mess we're in Oh well is how we can begin I catch the wind and then the sparkling sun And the rats and friend uranium Whose tiny size belies enormous powers Which are ours to use against the change Fossils in the home Yeah, we'll fight a war on coal And make polluters pay the loss they flout Plant some trees to suck the carbon out We'll get a power in ways that are carbon free You and me We'll work 
the key thing that we think is now needed is for the climate majority to assert itself. There isn't going to be a kind of transformation that is needed here without most people getting on board. And most people are never going to become radical flankers. Most people are never even going to become activists. You know, there'll definitely be more people who are becoming activists in the 2020s, and that's great. But will there be enough? No way. No way will there be enough. If we're going to actually have most people on board and the climate issue is so vast and so saturating of all of our lives that there just is no way through without most people on board. Most people are going to get on board. It's not going to be with activism, let alone with Extinction Rebellion, let alone with just the foil. So what we're trying to offer is something which actually is an invitation that the majority of people could take up. And also crucial about what we're trying to do in the Climate Majority Project is mm -hmm. it's about much more than just us. Right. We're trying to name something, to thought lead something, to incubate something. But this is going to be a vast uh, a wave of uh, an ecosystem, as you put right. it, in itself, right. of more or less connected and disconnected, but all pointing in the same direction, right. organizations mm. and initiatives. You ask, is the Climate Majority Project a movement? My answer is sort of, well, yes and no. I mean, a movement isn't a bad word for it, but right. movement will have some of the wrong associations for yes, some people. I hear you. Some people will be thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, movement, that's the kind of thing that activists do. Yeah. And no, it's not that. And I, this is why I often use this term wave now, a wave, something which is emerging, which is incredibly uh, diverse, but all pointing in the same direction as yeah. a wave does. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, and so on the one hand, we clearly need more people to get engaged. On the other hand, what we're looking at is systemic change. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at the injustices and we need to look at the massive devastation that's going on right now. Yeah. And we can't just ignore those, right? Mm. And so then the question gets to be, well, then do we have to water down the message mm. of what's mm. needed? Yeah. So do we have to sort of tread very lightly on the difficult issues in order to try to engage people? And yeah. then do we end up just diluting everything so much that it becomes... So this, I think, yeah. is a fundamental question. I'd love to Absolutely fundamental your, question. Your and, you know, if that was what was going to happen, it wouldn't be worth bothering with. Right. Uh, if it was about dilution, no way. The first strand of our theory of change in the Climate Majority Project is truthfulness. It's the same thing as was at the essence of Extinction Rebellion. We're absolutely carrying that forward. What we're saying is, look, the truth is much mm. too good to keep to a small radical minority. Mm. It needs mm. to be brought to everybody. And our professional audience research that we've done suggests that people are up for the truth. They want the truth. They, they, they don't want to be talked down to. They want to be uh, treated like adults. But they realize that the truth is no good to them unless it comes in the right context. So you can't just dump the, the difficult truth about where we're at on mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm. You have to give them power and tools to help them handle it. So that's all sorts of different things. It could be, you know, support groups. It could be psychotherapy. One of the things we're specifically arguing for is that when people in schools or universities are teaching ecology or climate science, yes. help in handling those difficult truths ought to be built in. Because it's a traumatizing thing to do, to do that teaching. It's a traumatizing thing to do, to give some of the kinds of talks that I give to people where I lay out very starkly yes. the nature of our uh -huh. predicament. Yeah. That needs to be built in. Yeah. Similarly, if people are, are told the truth and helps to handle the truth, but they don't know what to do next, 
again, they're just disabled. They just feel powerless, rudderless, etc. So you've got to build in meaningful, effective, pragmatic pathways to action, right. which could actually add up to being enough. Yes. And that's what we're seeking mm. to offer and explain and provide as models. That's what we're seeking to support in concrete cases like General Counsel for, mm -hmm. for uh, Sustainability Leaders, uh, used to be known as Lawyers for Net Zero. These are senior corporate lawyers who yes. are trying to do the right thing on climate. You know, really yeah, interesting right. developments. That's why we're supporting community climate action, which is people in rural communities, often quite conservative communities, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who are getting together to grow their own food, getting together to maybe do things like take over their local pub and run it as a social enterprise right. if it's threatened with being uh, closed. Um, and these kinds of things, very diverse, right? Yeah. Rural citizens mm -hmm. growing their own food, senior corporate lawyers, as I say, all kind of moving in the same direction. Yes. These kinds of uh, diverse things, when one starts to kind of see oneself as part of this way, one starts to think to oneself, maybe, just maybe, this could be enough. And that counters yes. what we think is the greatest obstacle, really, to the mobilization of a climate majority, which is people thinking, I'm too isolated, it just isn't going to be enough, it's hopeless. Yeah. And that's the, the crucial fourth and final component of our theory of yeah, change, which right. is sense-making around this, which begins with people understanding the new moderate flank is emerging. The climate majority is emerging. It's growing. It's already happening. It's definitely going to grow more. Right. Add it up. It could be enough. It could be enough to stop us from collapsing. And even if it isn't, it will make the uh, what any kind of collapse events that do occur a lot less bad than, than they otherwise yes. would have been. So no watering yes. down. The truth is good enough for everybody. And the truth includes that action is occurring, that action is rising up from the grassroots, that it's mostly below the radar as right, yet. And that's right. something which the media also has to step up yeah. to and change its practices uh, on. And we're also working, by the way, with uh, with journalists and people uh, in the acting profession and so forth. That's another yeah. crucial part of the picture. But yeah, the, the whole truth needs to be handled by us yes. all together and acted on uh, together and sense made around together and then True hope will mm. begin. We're going to talk, spend a bit of time now looking at the Australian, United Kingdom and US alliance, AUKUS. So we've got Jamie Jeffrey and Julie Hart who are going to, to talk about the folly we've signed up to in joining with the US and UK and What's the issue as you see it? I think it's important to um, just explain exactly what AUKUS is because in our experience not very many people um, know what it is. Um, so it's an acronym, as you pointed out, A for Australia, UK for the United Kingdom, US for the United States. It's a military alliance that Scott Morrison um, uh, locked Australia into virtually in secret in 2021. Only a few of his inner, uh, inner circle knew about it. Apparently he gave um, the then opposition Labor Party 24 hours to decide whether or not to um, agree to it, and they did. And many of us thought that because the election was coming up in 2022 that Labor was just being a small target and, and not wanting to be wedged. Um, by the LNP, and so many of us, including me, how naive was I, thought that after Labor was elected that they would 
walk away from that AUKUS agreement. But in fact, what Labor has done is they've doubled down on it uh, and they're, they're rolling it out uh, full steam ahead with great enthusiasm, which is extremely disappointing. One of the key elements of the AUKUS deal is that Australia will spend uh, $368 billion on nuclear-powered submarines. Now, that's a conservative estimate based on the track record of defence projects, you know, blowing out um, significantly in terms of budget. But even so, $368 billion is a huge amount of money. It's almost unimaginable amount of money. And what will Australia get for that? Well, eight nuclear-powered submarines, three of which will be second-hand submarines that we will purchase from the United States. And the intention is that uh, five will be built um, in Australia, in South Australia. Uh, and these submarines won't, you know, begin to be available until sometime in the 2030s and then 40s and 50s. So it's a very, very long-term project involving three countries. It's extremely complex and, um, you know, it, it'll be a miracle if it actually happens, really. But it also involves giving billions of dollars to the United States and the United Kingdom to increase their shipbuilding capacity. So this is Australia giving Australians taxpayers' money to two other First Nations countries to help increase their shipbuilding capacity. So there's a couple of things. Um, there's a whole host of reasons why AUKUS is not the right way for Australia to go. But in terms of focusing on the environmental aspects of it, there are a couple of things. First of all, imagine what we could do with $368 billion if we applied that money to tackling climate change. Seriously, we could just about, <laughs> well, we could do so much with that amount of money. And obviously the whole world needs to be involved in tackling climate change. Australia can't solve it on its own, but Australia could just do so much with $368 billion if it invested in tackling climate change. So that's the first thing. But the other thing, and I'd like to quote some statistics at this point, the other thing that um, I want to talk about is the link between militarism and global warming. The world's militaries combined and the industries that provide their equipment, so defence manufacturing industries, are estimated to create 6% of all global emissions. And that's according to a group called the Scientists for Global Responsibility. We don't have an estimate of Australia, the Australian military's emissions, but the estimate for the UK is 11 million tonnes, the EU, European Union, uh, 24.8 million tonnes, and the United States, 205 million tonnes. Now, that's just their militaries, not the whole country, just their militaries. Scientists for Global Responsibility says that these estimates are conservative because under the Paris Agreement, militaries are not required to report all of their emissions. And um, the estimates do not include the environmental impact of actually fighting wars. So, for example, the Iraq War was responsible for 141 million tonnes of carbon releases in its first four years. 
Another report from Brown University, the Costs of War Project report um, in 2019, said that the US military was the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the world, the largest single source. Went on to say if the US military was a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. So the link between militarism and global warming is very clear, and it's very clear to most people in the peace movement. But um, in our experience, it is not so well understood in the environment movement. And this is a problem because I think it um, prevents the peace and environment movements working together. And that is absolutely what we need to do to overcome or to put a stop to both militarism and global warming. We are not going to be able to stop global warming unless we stop militarism and war. Uh, and it is absolutely vital that the two movements work together. The other thing that I wanted to um, talk about briefly is all things nuclear. So just recently I read, and I can't remember exactly where, I think it might be somewhere in South Australia, there's a uranium mining is going to recommence. Now that's uranium mining leads to nuclear weapons and it leads to nuclear waste. No country in the world has found a permanent solution for storing nuclear waste safely for the thousands of years that it needs to be stored um, whilst it remains poisonous. No country has ever found a solution to that. Currently, Australia has um, low enriched uranium waste to deal with from Lucas Heights, um, which uses uranium um, for um, medical purposes. So, you know, there's a valid, a valid use of it, I guess. Um, but that's low enriched uranium. And Australia has never found a permanent solution to the storage of low level waste. Um, now, with the three uh, nuclear-powered submarines um, that we buy secondhand from the United States, the United States has made that conditional upon Australia taking responsibility for dealing with the waste at the end of the life of each of those submarines. So Australia will have to store the highly enriched radioactive waste from those submarines somewhere. Now, all land is Aboriginal land in this country, so it doesn't matter where they store it. It will be on Aboriginal land and the Aboriginal communities affected will fight that and it is absolutely incumbent upon every single one of us to stand with them in that fight. Um, and, of course, Aboriginal people were also in South Australia subjected to nuclear testing, which is the other thing that uranium mining leads to, nuclear testing. And the nuclear testing that was done in South Australia in the 60s um, continues to impact current generations of Aboriginal people and the land, and it will continue to negatively impact people and the land for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. So in Australia, um, we don't need nuclear power because we have an abundance of sunshine and wind and hydro. We don't need it. And 
if we mine uranium and export it, then we have no control over how other countries use that uranium. So it could be used for nuclear weapons. And even if it's used for something like medical use, we still have to, somebody has to dispose of the waste. So um, that is another area over which it's critical that both the peace and the environment movements work together on all things nuclear. And that's kind of the obvious area, I think, that the two movements can can work together over because all things nuclear are a huge problem that the world has never solved and we need to find other ways of doing what we need to do to have a good life and we need to make sure that that good life is available to everyone. Australia is in a position to become a renewable superpower And the US has got the jump on us with their the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with the environment, but it's about giving um, you know favourable conditions and subsidies and so on to um, to attract renewable investment in renewable sources of power, all things renewable. Um, So they've got the jump on us if we don't get if Australia doesn't get on board and start really moving and shaking with um, attracting investment and promoting renewable energy, then, um, you know, we we might lose out where contracts will go to the US instead of to Australia. We've got also got Julie Hard. Julie, I'm just wondering if you can tell us why you chose to get involved in in this campaign. Uh, Well, it came really through IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, which is every state has uh, members and um, we're part of that here in Geelong with the Geelong IPAN Geelong and Southwest Victoria. So, um, yes, I got involved mainly with the Antiochus was, oh, the day after that um, Scott Mor- oh, the day Scott Morrison and uh, Joe Biden, um, Boris Johnson. There, that was a terrible day in the life of Julie. <laughs> I just screamed at the um, television. Couldn't believe my ears. And then all of a sudden everyone was online and we had Zoom meetings straight away around, you know, the iPad. And uh, I've still got it all stuck up on a wall in the passageway because it was so important that uh, everyone got together. So... Um, Yes, I've followed this for a long time. I've been to Rum Jungle too, which was the place where they mined uranium and uh, it's been closed down now, but it was only about 10 years ago, I think, that um, England again had to give money to Australia to uh, deal with the waste and deal with the uh, Tailings Dam and no-one's allowed to swim in that. I went to go and see it. There's so many stories about nuclear waste and um, you're not allowed to fish in this area. So even though it's all closed down now. So this will go on forever. I was doing a bit of uh, maths while Jamie was talking about the cost of AUKUS. Uh, as she pointed out, it's $368 billion for eight submarines. That means that each submarine cost $46 billion each. Can just bear that $46 billion US dollars in your mind and then go back to Jim Chalmers last budget where he committed 2.3 billion dollars for climate change over the next 10 years so compare 2.3 billion for 10 years to 
46 billion for one submarine. Yes. It's unthinkable that we're allowing it. And then I'll come back to the fact that submarines as a weapon are completely outdated. They're a hundred years. The concept is a hundred years old. And to think of them as being a defense for Australia, basically submarines are sneaky ways of sinking other vessels. I mean, if you get any school child to design a defense for Australia, they will look at drones to, um, because we're an island nation, they will look at drones to keep an eye of what's happening around us rather than submarines, especially eight of them. They wouldn't even cover half of the coastal areas. They are a wrong concept and it's a ridiculous waste of money. Yes, I certainly agree. And also it's, it's uh, brought to light a lot of anti-China uh, racist views of our best trading partner yep. and uh, we have friends that are chinese and uh all you know they're in, in the country they're they're in melbourne and they're really lovely people and it's just they have a different government system america can't rule the world just yeah. because it's the biggest superpower on earth and they've got the most nuclear weapons so we have to give away uh, if you take the negative outcome of the weekend's no vote and then you expand it by a thousand times. That's what happened when the United Nations were set up at the end of the Second World War in order to try and stop war in the future. The permanent members of the UN are so warlike, they out always outvote everybody else. Well, it's all to do with money and prestige. You know, one of the in the nuclear club, and it's yeah. some moded thinking now in today's world. We've got technology to talk with people even if they don't even if they don't have English that sounds very you know but that's what we speak but um, I've been on had a phone conversation with a, a girl who was deaf and it can convert English to English but we know that translation is really top-notch now uh, we see it on zoom all the time when people's talking and there's a line going across, they might make a mistake and it might look funny, but it's very rare. Um, there's no reason not to have dialogue before a war starts. If it's getting really tense, like it did with Ukraine and Russia and NATO going up to the borders against the Minsk agreement, well, it could have been stopped in two days, I'd say, before, you know, before hostilities started. So why don't we learn from our mistakes? Jamie. Just on Ukraine, um, very early on in that conflict, Russia and Ukraine were prepared to talk, mm. to try to negotiate, and the US intervened and put a stop to that. This is a proxy war that the US is carrying out in Ukraine because uh, strategically the US wants to weaken Russia and the Ukrainian people are paying the price. The more that the West arms Ukraine, the longer the war will drag on and the people who are dying are Ukrainians. So that's a terrible situation there. Um, but I also wanted to just add before we finish up, one, one other aspect of that connection between global warming and militarism. So what the US has been doing is clearing jungle 
in the Pacific and other parts of the world for military airstrips and military bases. So that is another way in which militarism contributes to global warming. And again, I just want to stress that I think it's really critical that the environment and peace movements work together because, yeah, we, we, won't, we can't do this on our own. The peace movement can't, the environment movement can't. Um, and just quickly, on $368 billion, that's also money that is not being invested in housing when we have a housing crisis, in raising the rate of job seeker payments so that people can actually survive on it in a cost of living crisis, um, in health, education, all those other areas of social good. Instead, it's going to be invested in militarism. And I think that's appalling. And so there are many groups in society that should be working together to put a stop to AUKUS. I want to add to that that uh, that $368 billion is for the submarines. That doesn't include the weaponry. And we all know that these are all estimates. They're stabs in the dark and they never, ever come in under budget. They always come in over budget. So we're committing ourselves for the next 25 years to just pour money into a huge, unnecessary bowl. We, we, as you pointed out, we could solve climate change just by the impetus of, of putting that money into climate change into the um, positive area of the future rather than a weaponry a lot which is well, just going to cause more wars because if you haven't got the if you haven't got the weapons you you don't attack people Jamie and Julie thank you very much can you then tell us what can be done and what should we do the listeners uh, and and the sustainable hour how can we sort of get involved in this Okay, so one thing that's going to be happening in March next year is a big rally in Melbourne and probably every capital city against AUKUS because it's on the anniversary of the signing of the deal with um, Biden, Sunak and Albanese. On that anniversary, we're going to have a big rally, rallies all around the country. So that would be a great time for all the different movements to come together Um, and support that rally um, with their banners about their specific reason for opposing AUKUS, whether it's housing, climate, whatever. So that would be a great thing, um, and I can give you more details so that you can promote that. Um, please come on, uh, back on to the program before then and remind us, if you will, please, Jamie. Yeah, happy to do that. What, okay. what, what was the date? Saturday the 16th of March will be the date. We haven't worked out the time and the starting point for the Melbourne rally yet, but, I, yeah, I'm happy to come back on and, and closer to the date. Lovely. Thank you very much for both of you. Uh, and just keep on going. And if you have anything that uh, you think of concern that, to our listeners and you think that you would uh, want a message to get across, please just come back on. Okay. Happy to do that. Thanks so much. See ya. I, I would end up by saying to our listeners, if you don't know, find out. <laughs> Be the difference.
many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference, be the difference, it's all in the future's watching.